this morning, the book of Philippians. As we're traveling through Philippians, we're in chapter 1. We've gone as far as verse 14. If you're visiting with us at Calvary Chapel, we go through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So the last couple of weeks we've been in chapter 1. We'll finish chapter 1 this morning. Keep in mind that Paul the Apostle is writing this epistle about 10 years after he established the church at Philippi, his second missionary journey. You read about that second missionary journey in chapters 16 through 18 of the book of Acts. He would go to Philippi. He established the first church on a continent of Europe in Macedonia, northern Greece. He would work his way down. He would go to Thessalonica, establish the church there at Thessalonica. Amazing church. He was only there probably for a few weeks. And then Berea. And then he would go to Athens. And you read about in how he addressed the philosophers there on Mars Hills in Athens. And then he would go to Corinth. And so all those details are given in the book of Acts. But Paul had real fondness, and he was very close to the believers here at Philippi. And they gave to Paul and supported him. And, and so he expresses that in this epistle. Ten years after he established that church, he is writing from prison as he's chained to a Roman guard in his first Uh, imprisonment in Rome and he begins to express to them joy even in the midst of difficulties and trials and hardship that he's going through and I think that this is such an incredible study for us as we go through the book of Philippians because I know that many that have come through the services this morning that they're going through maybe perhaps you are presently just a time of just difficulties and trials and you wonder does God care uh, is he able to take care of me? Is his promises true for me? And, and Lord, uh, do you see me? And we can be assured that in the times that we find ourselves in, whether they're good times or difficult times, that the Lord does see us, and he's going to see us through, and, and he desires to work that joy inexpressible in our hearts. So, Father, we do ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. We, we have a few minutes here in your word We want to be settled in our seats. We want to be still before you. We want to be free from distractions. And Lord, I too pray that we would open up our hearts to you. The written word of God. This wasn't just written for them 2,000 years ago. But this is God-breathed. This is God-breathed, put to the page for us today. Your word that will be preserved for all eternity. So I pray that we would be teachable. And, Lord, that the things that we read, you would apply it in our lives in a very deep way, in a very real way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Paul, as he writes this letter, he he knows that the Christians are very concerned for him. So he says that my chains are for the furtherance of the gospel. How was it for the furtherance of the gospel? Well, we know that, number one, that he prayed for the Christians. And Paul was one that redeemed the time as he's there in that prison cell. And he prayed with joy as we see the opening uh, greeting that he gave to them. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for the fellowship and the gospel from the first day until now. For the last 10 years, I've been very thankful for you ever since I established the church. And, and I am praying for you with joy. And, and the thing is, it should bring us joy as we pray for others. I mean, think about this. 
As you intercede, praying for your kids, your grandkids, family members, friends, that you get to present them before the living God, before the throne of God. That's an amazing thing because you have relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. And it should bring us joy to pray for others, not seeing it as a burden or I guess I should pray for them. But no, it's a joy for me to pray for those who are linked to me in my life, just as it did with Paul the Apostle. And it brings joy to you, doesn't it, when someone says, I'm praying for you. So he said that as he expresses joy, this whole epistle, the theme is joy. It's for joy that that flows from me because I get to pray for you, but also for the furtherance of the gospel. Second of all, he would write the prison epistles. We get to be benefited today because we read what Paul wrote in that prison cell. And he would also write not only the book of Philippians, but Ephesians and Colossians and the book of Philemon. So we have uh, here four books, the prison epistles and the canon of scripture preserved for all eternity for you and for me. His chains were for the furtherance of the gospel because he said that his chains uh, would uh, bring witness to the guards who were getting saved. Let me read that to you in verse 13. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. In other words, being chained to Paul the apostle, the guards were getting saved. And at the end of the epistle, he would write that, the brethren greet you here, and also those of Caesar's household. So those of the palace guard were getting saved. And then fourthly, as we ended last week at verse 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So his chains would also give courage and boldness to the Christians to speak the gospel. And even in the difficulty... But God, uh, Paul would express how God would give him joy in the midst of the trial and imprisonment. He was assured that God was able to take care of him in this imprisonment. And God was still using him. And so Paul is expressing that. It's for the furtherance of the gospel. I know that God's still using me. He hasn't forgotten about me. So the question this morning is, what about you and me? What about us when we go through difficulties? What about us when we feel like we're being imprisoned or we're chained to a circumstance or a situation and we wonder, Lord, are you taking care of me? Do you see me? Do you even care about me? And I think that the apostle in this chapter very clearly answers, yes, that the Lord is working and he can take care of us and he can work that joy inexpressible in our lives. And he begins to address some of the motives now of others in their preaching the gospel. They have boldness, but it's interesting what he says. Let's read in verse 15 as we continue in chapter 1. He writes, Then some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So the apostle here mentions that there were those preaching the gospel, again with boldness, but something was happening as well. There were those who were preaching the gospel out of different motives. Some were preaching, as he mentions verse 15 we read, 
out of envy and strife. And then with selfish ambition in verse 16. Now, we're going to see in chapter 2 that Paul's going to say to us that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition. But yet, here is some preaching the gospel in that way, motivated by that. He says some were not sincere in verse 16. Now, last week, he prayed for the church. And remember what his prayer was, part of it? That you may be, what, sincere and without offense. Sincere means that you're not a phony. That, that, that you stand in the light. And what is being exposed by the light, because that's what light does, it exposes, it exposes as the light of, of God's word and his love comes to our hearts. It exposes really what is there. That it isn't anything phony, that, that truly we are Christians. Uh, I pray that you're sincere and without blame as, as others see your life. And here there are those who were preaching that were not sincere. Now when I first came to you know, ministry, into the ministry 30-some years ago, 31 years ago. As a pastor, um, I, I would never have believed that there would be those who would preach the gospel out of envy and strife, but it does happen. There are those who become envious of others, and, and I want to do that, or th- that's their motivation, or perhaps strife, a situation where a church splits and somebody takes a bunch of people with them and and starts a church. I've heard of situations like that. I I certainly know that there are those who will preach, perhaps out of selfish ambition, trying to be noticed. Um, And and there are those who were apparently envious of Paul's ministry. There was strife that was going on. Now, as we finish the chapter here, get into verse 27, Paul's going to begin to address the strife that was going on in the church. It was harming the church. He's actually going to name two individuals in chapter 4 that he says, you need to help these two individuals because what's happening is strife and contention has taken place and, and you need to bring them together. He's going to say, you need to come together in one heart and one spirit and one accord. We will see that shortly here. So there was some stirring up that was going on. And Paul, always in his ministry, as you read the book of Acts, as you read his epistles, uh, he was always dealing with those that had envy and strife. And I do not believe that he's talking about the Judaizers of Galatia. I don't believe he's talking about the ones who called themselves most eminent apostles there in the Corinthian church because he had very sharp words to say about them. Remember in our study of Galatians to the Judaizers, the ones who were coming in and saying, well, it's more than just faith in Jesus Christ. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul says that, I marvel that you're turning away from the gospel to another, which is not the gospel. And if anyone preaches another gospel than what we have brought to you, then let them be a curse, even if it's an angel. So Paul has very strong warning and, and words to say against the Judaizers that were yoking the people, the believers, the Gentile believers, into legalism, into the law. And you have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised to be saved. He said, that's not the gospel. Now, in Corinth, what happened was these these guys came in and called themselves the most eminent apostles. And they would put Paul out, you know, uh, at arm's length. They would make fun of Paul, don't listen to Paul. And Paul says that you put up with these guys, and they think they're so clever and smart, but they're not ministers of Christ. They're ministers of Satan, and they are false. So I don't think that Paul's talking about them, because here in verse 18... He rejoices that Christ was being preached. 
whether in pretense or, or bad motive or in truth that is a good motive, the gospel at least was being preached. It wasn't being preached with the Judaizers or those of, of Corinth that, that were boasting in themselves of being apostles and prophets. But if those who are preaching out of envy or strife or selfish ambition, God knows and if the gospel's being preached, I rejoice in that. I don't rejoice in their motives, those who wanted to make a name for themselves. Uh, I can do things better. Who cause strife to, to begin a ministry or do a ministry. Selfish ambition. Ambition isn't bad necessarily, wanting to do the very best for God. But the problem comes when it's selfish ambition. What can I gain? Uh, I want to have a success image, uh, prestige, recognition, touching the glory of God. And listen, Isaiah says that he will not share his glory with anyone. So Paul says, they add to my affliction, uh, that is, they, they add affliction to my chains. And they were thinking perhaps that with Paul out of the way, I'll gain, I'll become popular. They'll forget about Paul. They'll begin to look to me. But Paul also knew that there are those who had good motives as well. And those who, out of love, goodwill, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, showed their love towards Paul. And he would say in, in the Second Corinthians chapter 5 that it's the love of Christ that constrains us or motivates us. You see, our motive for ministering to others is a love for Jesus Christ. And we talked about that yesterday in our ministry class when we finished up. Kind of summed everything up by loving others in ministry. Because you see, you can do ministry. I can do ministry. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that you can tell mountains to be gone. You can prophesy amazing prophecies. You can give your body over to, as, a, as a sacrifice, a burnt sacrifice. You can give all to the poor, but if you do not have love, it means nothing. It's a love of Christ that constrains us and motivates us. And because he loves us, then we can love others. And that's why we minister, because we do have a love for others. We care about others. We want to give a message of hope to others, the only hope that there truly is. And knowing that he gets the glory out of humility. So Paul here talking about those motives, and he goes on and he writes. And, and by the way, you know, we should rejoice in what God is doing in the church so oftentimes what happens is there can be a focus by some of just always being critical of the church. Well, those Christians over there, they're really not Christians because of the songs that they sing, or they're not really Christians because of the way they do this, or they're not really Christians because they don't perform like we do. There's a lot of that negative talk, and I know there's a lot of problems in the church today, the church at large. That there's a diminish of the word of God. I know that there can be carnality. I know that there can be uh, all kinds of things that, that, that we look at that grieve us. But God is still working. Amen. And I don't want to just focus on all that. And that's all I talk about. But I want to be able to rejoice in what God is doing and what he's doing in this church. It's amazing what he's doing. 
And I believe he wants to do so much more in these latter days. So Paul's writing about that and says, For I know in verse 19 that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now always Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. The apostle doesn't know exactly what the outcome's going to be when he goes before Caesar Nero. Now keep in mind, as we talked in the opening of this letter, Paul was arrested at the end of his third missionary journey in Jerusalem. It was set off a series of trials that he would go to Caesarea. He would stand before Festus and Felix, the governors. Uh, he would stand before Agrippa. Paul, being a, a Roman citizen, appealed to Caesar. They said, well, okay, you're going to go to Caesar. He gets on a boat. He goes to Rome. He's waiting to go on trial before the emperor. He's there under house arrest. It is believed by historians for about two years before he goes on trial. Now, the Bible doesn't record that. The Bible does not record Paul standing before Caesar Nero, nor does Paul talk about it afterwards. Uh, he, he, in his second imprisonment, about six years after, six, seven years after this first imprisonment, that he would be put to death by Caesar Nero. But in this first imprisonment, Paul is standing before Caesar Nero. We can be confident of that because I think the Bible tells us that. We know in Acts chapter 9, after his conversion, that he was told that you're going to be a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. When he was arrested there in Jerusalem, in, in Acts chapter 23, the Lord stood by him and said that you must bear witness at Rome. You're going to bear witness of me, Paul. And then in Acts chapter 27, when he's in that boat and it's about ready to go down. And, and all of a sudden, Paul, he says to the crew, listen, no one's going to die. An angel came and told me that I must be brought before Caesar. So we're confident that Paul did stand before Caesar Nero. And I think we can be confident that Paul witnessed to Caesar Nero. Because he witnessed to everybody. And he would give his testimony like he did with Agrippa there in the amphitheater in Caesarea. And we can be confident that Nero would reject that witness because it's interesting that right after that, that Caesar Nero went insane. And he began to heavily persecute the Christians. He would burn them at the stake. He would torture them. He burnt the city of Rome down. He blamed the Christians. And Paul standing before Caesar Nero in that first imprisonment, there would be a record of it in the Roman court, and they would, as he begins to arrest the leaders of the Christians, persecute them very heavily, Paul would be rearrested. And then he's put into the Mandertine dungeon in a terrible place and then beheaded by Caesar Nero. Peter would be killed by Nero as well. Nero killed many, many Christians. At this time he's writing the letter, he's not sure what the outcome is going to be. But he is trusting that God is in control. And whether I am released or whether I die in this Roman cell or, or put to death, I know that whatever God's will is for me, listen, because it's true for you and for me. I won't be ashamed, and neither will you. And Paul wanted to make sure that Christ was magnified. That is my earnest expectation. Paul is trusting God mightily here. Now, when in verse 19, Paul writes that about his deliverance, 
He could be talking about being freed from prison, but also the Greek word could speak of spiritual deliverance, salvation, heaven. So Paul is using that word to speak about his release from prison or that final stage of how his life you know, would end um, you, you know, be, as he would go home to be with the Lord if that's what would happen, if that's the, the judgment that would come to him. So it's a reference that he says this truly can happen. It's a possibility. But I know for you believers at Philippi that you care for me, you're concerned about me, you're going to pray for me, and that God will hear your prayers, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, Christ will be magnified, whether I live or whether by my death. Sometimes when we find ourselves in prison, and I think that perhaps there may be even some that are here at this service, that we can have a tendency to think that, Lord, are you working? Lord, have you turned against me? Are you working for bad rather than for good? You see, that's what Jacob thought in the book of Genesis. Many of you are familiar with those chapters as you conclude the book of Genesis. Jacob had 12 sons, the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel. His favorite son was Joseph and gave him a coat of many colors. And, and Joseph's brothers were very jealous of him, envious of him. And they took him and threw him into a pit. And they sold him off into slavery to Egypt. Took his coat of many colors and put some animal blood on it and said, Dad, sorry, Joseph's dead. He got killed by a wild animal. How cruel. Because Jacob wept and for years he would grieve over what he thought was the death of his son Joseph. Well, Joseph's put in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife's made advances towards him. Joseph, he's just a teenager. But he has such a heart for God and wanted to honor the Lord. And he's there, and, and Potiphar's wife says, lie with me. And, and he says, how can I do this wickedness before my God? I won't. And he runs. And then he would be accused falsely by her as she got mad and, and uh, making advances. And he ended up in prison in the Egyptian prison cell. And that was not a good place in ancient times. Many people died. They starved to death. They froze. They it was terrible conditions, and he was there for years, for about 12 years. Well, all of a sudden, the butler, who was down in prison before, you know, says to Pharaoh, who had a dream that really bothered him, hey, there's this guy, Joseph, he interpreted a dream for me when you were mad at me, and, and, and he'll interpret the dream. And so they brought Joseph up, cleaned him up, he went from prisoner to prime minister in one day. And he says, Pharaoh, and what is interesting when you read it, Pharaoh has this dream. And Pharaoh wants to know what it's all about. And Joseph says, there's a God in heaven that will interpret the dream. And he tells him that there's going to be seven years of, of good crops. Store up the grain because there's going to be seven years of severe famine. But what I find interesting with Joseph, in the difficult times, those years of being in a pit, in those years of being, you know, mistreated, that he doesn't say to Pharaoh, you know what, let's make a deal. I'll interpret the dream if you release me. Let's make a deal, you know. I'll interpret the dream if you do this favor for me. He doesn't say to Pharaoh, I'm great and I know how to interpret dreams. I'm so wonderful. He said, no, there's a God in heaven. 
he will give the interpretation. And as far as, as he was concerned, he was going to go right back into prison. He was trusting the Lord during this time. And the Pharaoh says, there's no one that has more wisdom than you and made him prime minister. Seven years of good crops, they store up the grain. And then all of a sudden, here comes Joseph, his brothers. They're going through famine. There's no food. There's a man in Egypt, Jacob says, their father. He he has grain. You need to go and ask him and get some grain or we're all going to die. And so they go, and Joseph's brothers recognize Joseph or did not recognize Joseph. Joseph recognized them. That's my brothers. They had no idea it was Joseph. And and they're asking for grain. And and it's interesting when you read those chapters that Joseph says, is your father still alive? Yes, he's still alive. He goes in the back and he weeps and he comes back out. You got any other brothers? Yeah, the youngest, Benjamin. He goes in the back and he weeps and he comes back. And he says, listen, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of grain, but I'm going to keep Simeon. And when you come back for more grain, you better bring the younger brother, Benjamin. So the brothers go back to see Jacob. Many of you, you know the story. And they said, we got to bring Benjamin back or we're going to starve. And Jacob said, no, I don't want that. We need to do that, Dad. And Jacob cried out. And he would say, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All things are against me. All things are against me. The years of grieving that he went through, and now he's grieving grieving for Simeon, and he's like, I'm going to lose my youngest, Benjamin. God is against me. And maybe you've gone through some loss. And maybe you're going through some difficulties, and you're thinking, Lord, you're against me. Job, he expressed that through his losses. God is against me. The children of Israel out in the wilderness, they felt that way, that God hates us. But in Jacob's case, God was working for good. And he and his family would be saved as they would be reunited. And at the end of Joseph's life, he would address his father or his brothers by saying, what you meant for evil, God meant for good in order to save many people alive. And Joseph had realized that through his imprisonment that God was working for good. And he did have those moments that get me out of here. And can you imagine some of the nights that he had thinking, Lord, do you see me? Do you even care about me? I wonder if Paul had those moments. Because he's been in prison for nearly four years now. And maybe you're in a situation where you're wondering, maybe it's been four days, four months, four years, four decades that you're wondering, Lord, do you see me? Do you care? And we can know, as the apostle here says, I know that the Lord is working. I know that he can care for me, that he sees me and the promises are true. And we can say, Lord, I know I belong to you. And you promise you'll never leave me or forsake me. And you will work out your good in eternity's perspective. And your promises are still true for me. And you're not going to abandon me. You're not going to leave me as an orphan. And the apostle here is expressing to the believers that he was in the center of God's will and that God was going to work. That in the meantime, I'm going to magnify the Lord. I'm going to trust him. 
because I know that he is good and he is true. And Lord, I'm going to stay close to you and let you work because when I'm confronted with the things that I don't understand, I'm going to fall back on the things that I do understand. That is your goodness and your promises and that you're with me and you are working. Lord, my life is yours. And you've given me real purpose in life. And you have saved me. And I know that I won't be ashamed in how I spend my life and whatever you allow to come into my life. And I choose to magnify you. And as Paul writes in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you realize only the Christian can say that? To die is gain? Only the Christian can say that. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nonetheless, uh, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul sums it up really in a very beautiful way here, as an amazing way in verse 21, as he writes, As for me to live is Christ. Have the, I have that underlined. Paul wanted to honor and to bring glory to Christ. He's everything to me, to live as Christ. Now, how would we fill that in, honestly? For me to live is, you see, we all live for something, every single one of us. What is the master passion of your life? What is the love of your life? For me to live, some people say, is pleasure. For me to live is just to make more money. Nothing wrong with making money. But for me to live is to, to make more, to, to be greedy, to live for self. And may we all here this morning say, to me to live is Christ. He is the priority of my life. I live for him above all else. And because Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, because I will be with him for, for all eternity in heaven. He's going to write later on that we're citizens of heaven. We belong to a kingdom that lasts forever. It's gain for us when we go home to be with the Lord. And may we live with that, that attitude and looking forward to heaven, realizing for the Christian to die is gain for you and for me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Doesn't mean we don't grieve. We grieve on this side of eternity. But it is gain for the Christian. And he knew, Paul, also, that if he went on living, he was released, that certainly there would be fruit from his labor. You're not done with me because being confident of this very thing, when we go to verse 25 here, he's going to say being confident of this the second time in the chapter. But in verse 6, remember, he said, being confident that he who's begun a good work in me will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul here is saying, I'm kind of between two opinions, you know. To go home to be with Christ, which is better for me. I don't have to go through the trials and difficulties of life. But also knowing that if I'm free, that it's going to benefit you. And there's going to be, again, fruit that comes from the ministry. And uh, he wanted to just be in God's will, whatever the Lord wanted for him. And being confident of this, that I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. 
So Paul knew that if he was released from his imprisonment, that his friendship and, and closeness with the Philippian believers would continue. And they'd be rejoicing to see him again. Their rejoicing would be more abundant or that is overflowing, and it is all in Christ Jesus because he's the source of that joy and our joy as well. And I pray that we would have joy when we gather together. Oh, I pray that none of you come here and say, I'm just coming because, you know, my spouse is dragging me here. Or I have to, some kind of duty. No, that it's a joy for us to be here. And that joy would just keep overflowing as we're together, as we continue to be a family, seeing what God is doing. God is the source of, of that joy. He's the one that is the head of the body of Christ, putting a family together that is just amazing. It really is. And a lot of people, most people, don't have that. Even Christians, they belong to the body of Christ, but they don't have that fellowship because it's not of priority. It's not of importance. And it isn't that God stops loving you or you lose your salvation, but you miss out on so much joy and just being with the brethren and strength and encouraging one another. And in that, he begins to talk about, in verse 27, there's strife that's going on. You know, there's a problem, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Regardless of what happened to Paul, the Philippian believers were on his heart, whether he would be released from his bonds or, you know, gone home to be with the Lord. He, he wanted to honor Christ in his life, but he wanted the Philippian believers to as well. So he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Conduct be worthy literally means live as citizens, to live for Christ, and then in a way that it is worthy of the gospel. That is the responsibility of every child of God. Now, don't think that I have to be worthy, work in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying, since you are saved... And citizens of heaven because of what Christ has done for us. Then live it. What he's done for you. Walk in that. Be a doer of the word. James exhorts your faith will be evident in the way that, that we live. And Paul's desire for them and my desire for, for us as a church is that we would stand fast, number one, in one spirit with one mind. And then secondly, striving together. It's a joint effort working together for the faith of the gospel. That's my prayer here for us at Calvary Chapel. That we would strive together. We would stand fast. And he's going to tell us how we do that in the next couple of weeks as we move into chapter 2. And then he speaks about your conduct being worthy of the gospel. He goes on and say, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. This was a church that was persecuted, which to them is proof of perdition, but to you is salvation and that from God. Live courageously, you know, in the midst of your persecution and affliction. Don't be terrified of your adversaries. But as you're coming together, striving together as one, it's going to give you boldness. It's going to give you courage. And it's going to be a testimony to the adversaries of, you know, assigned to your oppressors, those who are persecuting you, of their destruction. That their end's going to come. That they have a false hope. 
You have Christ, which is to live. You have Christ, which is to have eternal life. And I believe that that's an important reminder to you and to me because in the days ahead, it could get much difficult, more difficult for us as people come against us. As the world is turning further and further away from the Lord in our own country, we need to come together, to strive together, to, to be of one mind and one spirit, one heart of the gospel. Because it is going to get harder for us. And he, he speaks about that persecution in verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in, is in me. I heard a preacher once say that if you just have enough faith, you won't suffer. I've come to realize he's never read the Bible. Because you will suffer. All throughout the Bible, we see God's people suffering. And also in the New Testament, is Jesus himself that would say to his disciples that the world hates you because they hated me. He said, a servant isn't greater than his master. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. It has not only been granted on your behalf, he writes, of Christ to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. The last days, Paul writes right before they executed him to Timothy, is going to be perilous times. It's going to be very violent times, very fierce days. Men will be lovers of self. There's going to be those of corrupt minds. There are going to be counterfeits. There are going to be those who are going to come along and they're going to persecute you because those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we will suffer some kind of persecution to some degree when you're living for Christ. And, and sometimes it comes from our own family or friends or whoever it might be. And it is hard and it is difficult. And another reason why we need to be striving together in one heart and one accord to encourage each other. This is a place where you can come and be built up. Because the world is very difficult out there, very mean. But I want to close with this. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles standing before the religious council, they beat them, they imprisoned the apostles. They said, quit spreading the name of Jesus here in Jerusalem. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, the gospel. Wouldn't that be wonderful if it was said of us, you guys there at Calvary Chapel, you're filling all of, of Greeley, Well County, Colorado with the gospel. It's like, amen, right? Because it's a message of life and hope. And of truth. And they said, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep giving the gospel. So they were beaten again. They were released. And you read in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So when the persecution and the difficulties and those who make fun of you and come against you and come down on you, do you see it as, man, I can rejoice underneath it all? It doesn't make us happy but I can rejoice underneath it all because I'm considered worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. And listen, you will not be ashamed. He sees you. He's going to be with you. And those who persecute you, you keep praying for them as hard as it is. But know this, that God cares for you. And he's going to reward you greatly as we go through this life standing firm 
on the gospel and coming together for the gospel, this church um, together. That's what my prayer is, especially, especially in these difficult days. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this lesson, and we thank you for just your word given to us. And, And as we conclude this morning, so many have been blessed. They've said already and encouraged that in the difficult times, knowing that you are with us, and you care for us, and we just want to magnify you. We may not understand everything, but we can't understand your word. We can understand that your promises are true and that you're with us and that you are working in eternity's perspective. Even as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 that he promises to work all things for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And it doesn't mean that he turns the bad to good. It means that he's working good in the bad and in the difficulty. And we can continue to trust you and rest in your love. And you're going to see us through. So, Lord, thank you for that. May it bring comfort to us. And I just pray for everyone right now that perhaps it's just saying that, Lord, why? And get me out of this situation. And it is so hard wondering if you are working, if you see them that they would have the truth and the comfort to know that you do see them and you are working. That you would choose to magnify him and trust in him and rest in his love. That we as Calvary Chapel here would love one another, encourage one another, striving together for the gospel with one heart and one accord because it is hard out there and we will go through tribulation. But we can be of good cheer because Jesus overcame the world and died for our sins. So I want to pray if there's anyone here, maybe you're watching online or listening on the radio later, that you have not come to the gospel, you have not come to Jesus for eternal life and forgiveness of sin. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus alone, the Son of God, came and died for your sins because we're all sinners. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of eternal life comes through the cross of Jesus who died for your sins and made atonement and then cried out, it is finished. And He was buried and He rose again and He conquered sin and death. And the message this morning is to come to Him. That's His invitation for you to come to repent Turn to Jesus, confess you're a sinner, and surrender your life to him, coming in faith that he died for your sins and he rose again and that he is Lord. You can do that right now. Listen, the world is is not going to save you, and you cannot save yourself. The world will lie to you, and you will find yourself in a pit. Don't live for yourself. Live for Christ. He loves you, and he will do more with your life than you can ever do on your own. He wants to save you. Will you come to him for a new heart and a new beginning? To be saved and forgiven, you can say, Jesus, I come, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. Forgive me, and you rose again, and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Oh, I thank you for dying for me. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And I thank you for this new beginning and bringing me to the family of God. And Lord, whatever comes my way, I know that your word is true for me. And that I won't be ashamed. 
Thank you for hearing my prayer. And Lord, I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way, that our conduct would be worthy of the gospel. And even if we go through difficulties, that we would count, just rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for your namesake. Because you see and you will reward. Keep us strong in the days in which we are in. And Lord, we just commit all this to you in Jesus' name.